Hey guys, real quick before we start the episode, Scott and I have to tell you about our corporate overlords at Fangoria. They have long been champions of the genre and have recently undergone a makeover on the magazine side of things. In the digital world, they're dedicated to publishing a highly polished, highly collectible quarterly magazine filled with insightful writing, in-depth interviews, and of course, all the gory pictures you demand. And you can only get it in the magazine. And a really good way to get that magazine is head over to Fangoria.com right now. Uh, Sign up for a subscription. And if you're going to do that, and you should, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST, which will give you 25% off your annual subscription, which is... You know, it's a quarterly magazine, so that's like getting buy three, get one free. Yeah, we, we are mathematicians. I, I don't know if you guys know that. Well, we outsourced that one. We we hired a, a, a math guy to come in and help us on that. But but we yeah. are Steve Kornacki has a great board <laughs> that lays it out for us. Yes. All right. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Hello and welcome to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today we are joined by a very special guest. He is a respected author, actor, and side note, I think he was also the internet's first boyfriend. It's true. (laughs) And we'll get into that in a second. You'll know him from his memoirs, Dancing Barefoot and Just a Geek, as well as his work in TV and film from Star Trek The Next Generation as the universally beloved Wesley Crusher to a little film called Stand By Me. Please welcome Mr. Will Wheaton to the KingCast. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, Eric, it's great to talk to you again. It's been like 18 years since we last uh, did this. Yeah, yeah, no joke. We uh, our quick uh, backstory is, uh, and I want to know where where this is. Is I met you at Comic Con. I think it was two thousand two thousand one ish. Sounds about right. And I saw that you were doing signings and stuff like on the website before going out. And I'm like, you know, I have this beautiful British quad of Stand by Me, one of my all time favorite movies. I'm like, I'm gonna go get uh, Will to sign that for me. And I show up and uh, walk up to your table and uh, you ended up buying that poster off of me. Because it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Everybody knows the poster image from Stand By Me. It's the silhouette of the four kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's great on on those uh, uh, vertical posters, but it, it plays even better horizontally, which is how the British posters are. And uh, yeah, so you, you bought that off of me. I think you traded me, uh, you gave me like $20. <laughs> and you traded me uh, autographs, and uh, I think you gave me one of the like Star Trek: The Next Generation Wesley Crusher autograph cards or something. I mean, it sounds like we successfully engaged in a barter system. It was, it worked, and part of that trade was that I uh, I interview you for this website that I was uh, writing for at like nineteen or twenty years yeah. old. Yeah, uh, called Ain't It Cool News. And you're like, you know, sucks to be you because I'm super into this internet thing and I already know the site and I would have done uh, done the interview anyway. Eric, did you seek out another copy of the poster once you, once you I did? That I, I have a I have a regular US one sheet for it. I don't have uh, I, I haven't found another quad, though. The quad that I uh, that I acquired from you is in what I call the presidential library. I have a small collection of probably 50 or 60 things that I just want to hold on to that I want my grandchildren to have access to um, when they're you know older. And they're like, hey, who were you? 
and that's in that's in there. You, you and you turn to your your kids and just start spouting uh, the curse lines at them, and they're like, "I thought you said you wouldn't do this anymore." <laughs> <laughs> the therapist helped you get through this. But yeah, Stand By Me's long been one of my favorite movies. And then getting to know you a little bit, you know, I got to, you know, meet Anne and the kids. And when I was in LA, I would go visit you when you were doing your um, improv show. Was it Acme? At the Acme Comedy Theater. I was doing right, sketch yeah. comedy and improv comedy. Yeah. Yeah. No, there there was like a hot period where, where uh, like our paths just crossed like every, every other week. It felt like. Yeah, for, for that's like true. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't getting when you, when I was saying that you were like the internet's first boyfriend, you, <laughs> you became like kind of the face of, of being a geek on the internet. Yeah. I think that I was one of the, f- one of the early people who went from being on TV and in movies to having a blog and, and interacting with people in, uh, in really like just kind of for the time, very intimate and really just like openly social ways that I think we all take for granted right now. But in the early 2000s, I mean, at least for my generation, we were kind of figuring out what the internet meant and we were figuring out how we were going to communicate and who was going to sort of be in charge of all of that stuff. And like, what were the expectations for people who had existing careers in media in this new kind of expressive medium. And um, I had always wanted to be a writer and I've been revisiting that era a lot lately and I've been thinking a great deal about it. And, you know, one of the reasons having that blog was so important to me was I had an opportunity for the first time in my life to speak up for myself my entire life, like I would try to say something and like my mother would jump in between me and the microphone and like put out her version of things. Hmm. Or like I would want to do, I would be doing some press or something. I never wanted to do it, but I'd be doing press and it would be all about like jokes at my expense. And then there was, you know, this, there was this minute where we had this, this, uh, uh, so kids listening today who are new, um, to planet Earth. In the 80s and 90s, primarily the way that we talked to each other online was on Usenet, which is like a computer bulletin board. Imagine it being like a Discord server with no uh, voice. There were news groups. There was a news group about people who hated Wesley from Star Trek. And the thing is, it wasn't a lot of people, but they were really, really prolific. And <laughs> and I, as a result of that, I, I labored under the, um, the misconception that um, fandom like just hated me, that I was disdained by fandom the way I was disdained by my father. And like, I really internalized it and I really believed it. Like I grew up um, not to go too far down this particular road, but I was like emotionally abused like crazy when I was growing up and I had terrible self-esteem and nothing I ever did was good enough for, uh, for my parents. And, and if someone liked me, it was like, I, I felt like it was an accident or if someone liked me, I felt like, oh, it was a, um, like I had fooled them somehow, you know, that I, I wasn't genuinely good at anything was sort of how I, how I felt, but I felt like I was pretty good at writing and I felt like I was, and I, and I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I look back at it now and I'm just like, oh, you write like a 25 year old, you know, like that's fine. Um, but I stuck with it and it let me find my own voice, which in turn let me find myself, which has led me to a life and a career that I absolutely love, that I'm really, really excited about and really happy about, that I feel really good about. But those early days, like it was just, 
I talk about this with people who were there. Do you also feel like the internet just felt a little smaller? Oh, hundred percent. There's no question. I, yeah. I think about I think about the days. My first experience with the internet. My grandparents were weirdly always um, kind of early adapters of technology. Like they had a, a a cell phone in their in their car, like in the late '80s, and that was wow. like a giant brick about the, size, about the size of a briefcase. Yeah, it was. It was the and that was the charger for it or whatever. And then the phone was connected via cord to the top, and you like kind of un. You pick you picked it up and it probably cost like you know fifty dollars a minute to, to call anybody, but that was there in, for in case of emergency. Calls never lasted for more than a minute. <laughs> That's right. That, that, it was it was like the telegram for for cell phones. I remember I had Prodigy. Do you all remember that shit? Yeah, yeah. That was like I think that was all the precursor to America Online, if I'm remembering right. the timeline correctly. But you know those early days, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Prodigy was owned by Sears. And, no shit. I didn't uh, yeah, know that. Yeah. And before before Prodigy, there was Genie, which was owned by General Electric. And there was CompuServe. And I can't recall oh my God. who the primary owner of CompuServe was. <laughs> Mr. <America>, Serve. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Dr. Serve. Um, I remember when America Online became sort of ubiquitous, that it really did like literally bring America online and for, for better and for worse. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, and and that sort of led us to where we are now. But I remember back then feeling like you would go to Slashdot and Ain't It Cool and uh, Fark, um, mm-hmm. oh, Fark and yeah. uh, uh, maybe Metafilter, um, and then you would read the blogs. Like that's kind of what we did. There was no instantaneous communication. There was no social media. There was very, very, very limited streaming capabilities. It was just a very different world such a different world and the thing that that blows my mind is that it was such a different world and we're only ta- we're not even talking about two decades ago right which me- really- makes me incredibly excited for whatever in the world we cannot imagine is coming up in the next 20 years right i think i prefer the version of the internet before social media before the nazis rise. arrived <laughs> yeah it's fucking like on the one hand, Twitter has connected me to people that have become like in like real life friends. Yeah. I, I've I've talked to people that are are my heroes, you know, directly, and yeah. it's unbeatable in terms of a networking tool. If you're say running a podcast or running a website, which was what I was doing before this, yeah, and you know, on on that hand, it's great, but that's a very small part of what it actually is, which is mostly a fucking nightmare circus, you know? And I think it's just a net negative. I feel like maybe we were kind of naive in the, in the early aughts. And like, I'm sure that these awful people were around. We, they just, they hid a little more. Yeah. yeah. Well, they didn't, they didn't, uh, have, they didn't that have, and they also didn't have the, like, they didn't have the implicit support of uh, someone like Jack Dorsey, who I believe is a white nationalist. And they didn't have the tacit support of Mark Zuckerberg, who I believe is a sociopath. Yeah. And, and they didn't have the bully pulpit and, and support of the president of the United States. It was such a different time. And I, it bums me out because like, I really liked I really liked being able to like go to websites and and meet people and and in the early early uh, days of social media, I had a similar experience to yours in, in in meeting my heroes and and coming up with with relationships. I mean, I have friends now, professional friends who I never would have met if it weren't for Twitter. 
and and we're good friends. I have a role on the Big Bang Theory because of Twitter. Like that was because because I was doing my dumb Twitter stuff, and the writers thought I was funny, and and they were like, "Well, we're going to put him in the show." And I walked away from Twitter a few years ago because I just couldn't handle the fascists, and I couldn't handle just the toxicity of it. And I don't miss it at all. I don't regret it. Uh, I have no desire to go back. Um, and, and, uh, and that told, that really, really makes me sad. These, these, these media companies have the absolute ability as privately held companies to do something about the incitement of violence, the incitement of genocide, the incitement to, uh, anti-democratic spreading of like just easily disproved misinformation like it is it's become so bad and and so unchecked i feel like as a society we do not have the tools and the leaders at these companies are absolutely not the leaders who are needed to integrate this into society in a non-harmful way agreed yeah, totally I mean, look, agreed. look how long it took him to to uh, start banning QAnon accounts and stuff It'll eventually, I think eventually there's, there'll be a, a tipping point where someone's going to say, okay, all right, something needs to be done about this. Some sort of regulation needs to occur. And that'll be a big fucking problem because uh, people aren't going to want to be regulated. You know, that's, that's the beauty and the horror of social media, yeah. but it is coming, you know, it's, it's just a matter of time. You know, I don't know what the, the event will be, but there'll be, I, I think about it sort of the way I think about deep fakes, like. Deep fakes, everyone's using them for porn now and, and cute little apps on their phone to put themselves into their into fucking lethal weapon two or whatever, you know, fine. But sooner or later you're gonna end up in a situation where a major movie star's face is is plugged into a video of someone doing something very untoward, or a politician appears to be on on screen doing something that's, you know, uh, actionable. I, I expected this to be the deep fakes election. Like I really right? expected, I really, really expected something. And yeah, I'm was, shocked. And I was quite, I was quite surprised uh, when it didn't, when it didn't seem to show up. You know where it is? All those, vi those videos. They're on Hunter Biden's laptop, which was the most <laughs> important thing in the world, the most important thing in the world that everybody was focused on until the second the election was over, and then it didn't right. matter anymore. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Strange how that happens. Yeah, it didn't. Oh. It didn't matter beforehand. Uh, no, of course, it we're thank God. P.S. It wasn't a thing. Also, that's a, that's really <laughs> important to point out. That was not a thing. That was a thing that that crazy people made up. That was not a real thing. I do agree that I, I expected uh, Deep Tech to get involved with the election. I was just kind of bracing myself for a video to pop up of like oh, Joe God. Biden running through the halls of an orphanage, just like body slamming children or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but. next time. Yeah, we, we always have 2024, you guys. Yeah. Uh, just to move it along, I want to say that, uh, Will, you and I have never met before or spoken, so I don't have the, the history that you have with Eric. So I just want to get this out of the way up front. Huge fan of Toy Soldiers. Love that oh, thank shit. You. And um, also, Stand By Me was just formative in me getting deeper into the world of Stephen King. And just in my childhood, I, I watched that one a lot. So uh, really excited to have you here today. Thanks, man. Yeah, of course. Normally we kick things off and I say kick things off like 15 minutes into this recording now uh, by asking our guests what their Stephen King origin story is. That might be an obvious question for you, but it might not be. What What is your Stephen King origin story? What What was the first thing? Do you Was it a movie? Was it a book? Was it 
you know, you appearing in one of the most beloved movies of the, the 1980s based on, on one of his stories? What, what was it? The first piece of his work that I interacted with was Salem's Lot in, I think, 1979. Interesting. Uh, on television. I would have right. been, let's see, 79, I would have been seven or, or eight, depending on what time of year it was. And uh, I was terrified by it. Absolutely just mind-numbingly <laughs> sleep with the lights on, terrified of it. Then I didn't really interact with him again until the audition process for Stand By Me, which at the time was called The Body, which is the name of the short story. Did you put two and two together immediately that it was the same guy wrote both properties? Yeah. yeah. And I thought that meant that The Body was going to be a horror movie. And I remember the adults around me saying, it's a Stephen King story, but it's not a horror story, which to me felt like it's a Dracula story, but there's no vampires in it. Like I didn't understand how that, I didn't, <laughs> right. I didn't get, I didn't get how that could be possible. So I, I, I bought different seasons and I read three of the four stories. I, to this day, have not been able to get through the breathing method. It's just boring to me and I lose interest. It's at the end of the book. And by the time I get there, I have lost like my momentum to keep myself going all the way through it. I've tried multiple times. I've never gotten through the first 15 pages. Mr. King, I apologize. It's not you. It's me. Um, I read, so I read different seasons and I really liked it. And then I have this memory. Now I'm not sure if this is an actual memory or if this is a thing that I've just made up because it feels right. And I am not a reliable narrator on this point. This feels like a real memory but I don't know if it's true or not. This is one of the consequences of being a writer. Um, I'm just like, is that a thing that happened or is that a thing that I made up for a story? I can't remember. I recall going to the thrifty drugstore in my hometown and there being one of those tall spinning racks that would have comic books in it. And then around Halloween, it would have the little Halloween makeup and special effects things in it. And this particular rack had a bunch of paperbacks in it. And I saw the paperback cover for Night Shift, which was a hand with a bunch of eyes on it wrapped up in, a, in an unfurling bandage. And I saw Stephen King and I saw Night Shift and I saw that picture and I was like, that looks really cool. I wonder what that's all about. And I was already a, a voracious reader. I was a weird kid. I liked to be alone and I liked to be in books. I didn't like – I just – I didn't want to be like at home. I just didn't want to be in a place where my dad was going to be making fun of me. And I didn't want to be outside where I wasn't athletic and able to do any of the things the other kids in the neighborhood could do. So I was like, just all about the books. And I got, I bought night shift with my own money for like $2 or whatever it cost in 1985. And I just devoured it. I thought it was great. And that began, so that's really my Stephen King origin story, was reading Night Shift, which I've recently reread. It holds up mostly. Um, he does this thing, and he really does it. He does it especially in The Mist. Um, and I find it incredibly off-putting now, where he writes as a young, a horny young man, and, uh -huh. kinda, and he's kind of horny on Maine. And there's like, there's this thing in the mist where he's his narrative character is like, I love my wife. I sure want to fuck that woman. And, <laughs> and it's just like, it's so weird. And I don't, and, and it just, it just feels like, wow, you just became unsympathetic to me, but that's a digression. I just started going to the bookstore uh, back when we had them in the mall. Mm -hmm. And I just worked my way through his entire bibliography. I would just grab one after another, after another off the shelves. 
And I would read them in a couple of days, maybe three days. Some of them dealt with things that I didn't fully understand because I was a kid. So like a lot of Cujo was really lost on me. But then I got to the stand and that was the thing where I was like, this is changing my perception of the world the way ring world changed my perception of the size and scope of space. Hmm. The idea that you could tell a story that spanned an entire continent, that really was this amazing battle of good and evil that had these huge different phases in it was just like, I just, I couldn't believe it. It was like reading the stand was like going to the movies all day, every day for like a month. And I absolutely loved it. You're right. There's something to the length that works for it. I just recently revisited it as well, and it was my third go through through the stand. There's something about how in depth that book is, yeah, and how many characters are introduced that you fully feel like you know. Like he's just so great at, at making you know his characters, and yeah. uh, and that it just kind of it ceased being a book. And, and it's this sounds cheesy as hell, but it, it's. It's kind of it's the never-ending story, right? Like you're yeah. opening it up and you're looking through a window and revisiting real yeah. people. You're visiting yeah. real people. I, That's what the stand feels like. And it, there's not really another book of his. It maybe kind of comes close, but there's not another book of his that that has that exact feel for me. Not yeah. a standalone. I would argue that the Dark Tower does that, but it's not. You know, he's got eight books to fuck around with. Right. The Dark Tower is so interesting to me. I. The <laughs> I will spend the rest of my life trying to come up with an opening line as good as the man in black fled across the desert <laughs> that Gunslinger followed. Right. Like I will never write a line that good. I just it doesn't matter. I could write, I could do nothing but try to top that line for the rest of my <laughs> life, and it's never gonna happen. And he wrote it at 19. I know. Yeah, fuck nice. him. What a dick. <laughs> it's just it's so incredible. Like, come on, man. Like, God, fuck you. I love that series so much. Mm-hmm. Even when it gets fucking weird as shit in in the last two books. Right. And <laughs> those last two books feel like a fever dream. Um, <laughs> and I, lo- I loved it. I love how he gives you that moment at the end where he's like, look, if you want to walk away now, go ahead. Yeah. This is an entirely acceptable time to walk away from this story. But I know that's not going to be enough for some of you jerks. So here's <laughs> more. And and you'll probably be happier if you leave now. Yeah. yeah. It's such a baller move. Yeah. I just thought I just thought it was great. Um and and of course none of this gets into the impact that his book on writing had on me. Um that's of course mm-hmm. much, much, much later in life. We're still in the origin story phase of this. Um, but you know, there was in the eighties, there was a distinctive visual cover design that was used on all of his paperbacks. Mm-hmm. And uh, and those, I still have some of them. I still have my skeleton crew with the monkey on the front. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I still have it in hardback that it was like carrying around a freaking dictionary. Yep. Um, yeah. So that was, that was really where like, I've never met him. Uh, when we were doing Stand By Me, he was directing, well, depending on who you talk to, he was either directing Maximum Overdrive or on the set of Maximum Overdrive doing a ton of cocaine. Um, uh, it's, it's, I mean, both of those things might be true, um, but uh, yeah, I've never met him. I, I know that he is aware of my existence because I'm in Stand By Me, yeah. um, 
but I've never met him. I've never corresponded with him. I would like to. I would just like to thank him for what he's given me as a reader and as a career. This thing has happened to me during during this year of of pandemic, mostly staying at home. I'm having a really hard time reading. Yes. I, I find that my mind wanders like almost instantly. Yeah. I reread the same page a bunch of times and I'm not like absorbing stuff. And I don't know why it is. I don't know what is going on with this year and these circumstances specifically. But when I'm, when I say this to people, like it's just, I love to read. Are you kidding me? I've been reading my whole life. I have, I have that thing where you buy more books than you'll ever be able to read. And, and I just haven't been able to go more than five or six pages at a time. If I weren't a professional audiobook narrator, I would not have finished a book this year. I've absolutely had that same problem and related to it. I'm not sure how, but it's happening in the same part of my brain. The stuff that I'm watching for entertainment, I'm gravitating towards just absolute fucking trash. As you know? mindless as it possibly can be, right? I'm like, oh, right. good, there's a new episode of Holy Moly. Fantastic. That's a Dude, great way for me to spend my time. And I I've watched, spent my whole life being like, no, that's not intellectually stimulating. I'm not, that's that's garbage. That's right. junk food. And now I'm just like, bring on the trash, man. Yeah. I want the I just the trashiest junk that's ever existed. My wife and I have been watching Hallmark movies. We're and we're and we're just like, yeah. Like it's just oh, it's weird. But I'm on as- hour four of Pawn Stars. <laughs> Dude, I marathoned a whole fucking season of 90 Day Fiance. <laughs> I'm not quite there. <laughs> like, got caught up in the storylines and shit. Was like, oh my That's God. What is, you know, because th- that one's a really interesting case because literally everyone on screen in 90 Day Fiance is a bad person. I know. You know it is just, it's, <laughs> it's like not take, a single person you can cheer for. <laughs> it's, you, you know, you are, you are steeped in just absolute, like the worst sort of humanity you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, my wife tried to watch one of them with me. It was just like, absolutely fucking not. Like, this is really awful trash. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I like to run and I haven't run very much this year. And I know that I couldn't hop into a 5K right now and I certainly couldn't go do a, do a marathon again. But I can go for a jog and like, you know, after a mile, I feel like I'm going to die. But like, I can do that. I'm trying to do something similar with reading. I'm trying to ease myself back in and and just like reawaken the the synapses that are just not working right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I chose Night Shift and Skeleton Crew to do that because, you know, they're, they're easy to read and, and it's a bunch of short stories. So like it's constantly like starting over and re-engaging my attention and all that. That's a good, it's a good strategy. I also recommend starting a Stephen King podcast that forces you <laughs> to read a bunch of stuff that you already love. Yeah. Uh, that's helped me too. I've read uh, more in this last year than I probably have in the, three or four years leading up to it. And of course, all reading stuff I've already read before. Uh, But it's, it's, there is something to revisiting something that, you know, either you like, or you had issues with, and you're curious about like uh, Tommy knockers. I had to revisit recently. And that was always a King title that I never really loved. Um, But it's fascinating reading it more in a, I don't know, an analytical context and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't and, you know, approaching it, not, you know, uh, experiencing the story for the first time. Uh, so that's done wonders for me. So I highly recommend it. Just, <laughs> yeah, just I think doing there's it. also something interesting. I'm 48 now. So like I am squarely a middle-aged man and like 
I am aware of all the things that come with middle age. Like my body is just not as cooperative as it used to be. And I injure more easily than I ever did. And um, stuff that used to get me really worked up, I just could not care less about. And I feel like maybe I am cognitively and developmentally in a similar place to where he was when he did a lot of his stuff that I really, really enjoyed. Mm. I am interested as I go back into this stuff to experience it as this version of myself, a middle-aged man with all, all the baggage that comes along with that. And it has made just in, in night shift and, and skeleton crew, it just made things differently. Like, like I was talking, like I was saying about the mist before I was married, I was just like, Oh, whatever. You know, I didn't care about, about this like weird hookup as a middle-aged man who's married with kids. I'm just like, ugh, I hate this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck David Drayton. In his defense, it was the end of the world. <laughs> it was the end of the world. You know. It, it was but, definitely the end of the world. But that's a very small defense. Mostly the, the answer is that Stephen King was profoundly horny at, yeah. at that stage in his career. I, I think yeah. the horniness is sort of tapered off over time because you don't I don't notice it as much now. But if you go back and read like some of those short story collections or or even Cujo or Yeah. You know, it's it's just a much hornier version of King. Anyway, yeah. Let that image settle in on the listener for a moment. Dear listener, <laughs> enjoy the image of a horny Stephen King. Just really, yeah. just let that, go and explore that image as far as you want to. In his giant glasses and his plaid jacket. And <laughs> <laughs> his, his collar that goes down to his elbows. Yeah. Horned <laughs> up to the, to the nth degree. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. <laughs> So when uh, I asked if you would do the show, you you threw out a couple of different ideas, but the 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 one that obviously was the most interesting, I think, was uh, the title you wanted to talk about today, and that's different seasons. Yeah. Now, obviously, you have a personal connection to that, uh, but in order to tackle this uh, book, we should probably just do it in order of the stories for people who maybe haven't read it. I don't know if you're, uh, you'd be half an hour into this podcast and not having read uh, different seasons or knowing it exists, but it is a uh, novella collection of four stories that are longer than shorts and shorter than novels. And this was a very interesting time for King. This published in 1982. This was uh, right in between Cujo and Christine. He had been firmly branded as the horror guy. And this was kind of his, chance to go you know listen i have other stories in here and three of the four have been adapted two of them are all-time classics and it really is very cool as a king fan to go visit these because this is king going you know this is what i also have in me you like all the stuff that that you love about my work in horror fiction i can bring to drama or i can bring to uh like a nostalgia piece like the body and uh just from a writing standpoint it's a very fascinating collection i think yeah, when I um when I started when I started reading it, I knew from reading the script for the body that it wasn't blood and guts and and horror. So I kind of expected that the collection would be similar to that. But I remember when I started Shawshank Redemption, read it, which is Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption. I was on board by like page three. Yeah, I was just into it. Like I was so I got in trouble at school. I was in uh, I was in math class, and I had the book in my lap, <laughs> and I was just and I remember thinking I remember 
13 year old me thinking this class sucks. I want to go back to Shawshank prison. (laughs) And I opened the book and I got in trouble. Teacher took it away. I had to get it back at the end of the day. And I just remember feeling like these stories were really efficiently and beautifully told. I didn't have to do a lot of work to create the images in my head or to follow the story. And that's a thing that has stuck with me through all of his writing. There are other writers whose, like, their ability to to plot a large story is really impressive. But then when it comes to telling the story, it's a little rough. All of his work is just easy to read. This collection in particular, what's fascinating about it is that each one of the stories really boils down to a very close-knit interpersonal relationship, whether it's... Uh, Andy and Red and Shawshank or, you know, Gordy and Chris and Vern and, and, uh, uh, fuck, who am I missing? I'm missing. Uh, I could Gordy. bail you out and say Teddy, but I was, Teddy. I was Teddy. not going to do it. I was going to let you find it. Teddy, Teddy Duchamp, you know, but, or in, uh, a pupil, it is between the old Nazi and the, the young kid. It's like, yeah. In in breathing method, it's the doctor and the relationship he has with the single mother. But it's interesting how thematically those mirror each other. And then they even cross over at some point. Like you find out in App Pupil that the old Nazi guy was set up for life by a a stock trade or whatever that that Andy Dufresne from uh, Shawshank did for him before he went away. And so it's it's interesting how, you know, how thematically they kind of mirror each other and how he like layers them together. Didn't occur to me until just now that... The stories in this collection are, they are small stories. They're intimate stories, and they are very much about relationships. They are very, very, very much about friendships. Most of those friendships are great. The relationship between the Nazi and the kid is maybe not terrific, but uh, <laughs> I think that might be one of the reasons that I was so drawn to this to this uh, collection is mm. like I was lonely and I craved that kind of friendship that Gordy and Chris had. And I didn't have that in my life anywhere. I did not have anyone in my home or in my life who I could just rely on no matter what to 100% unconditionally be there for me. And I really loved reading stories about people who were there for each other in that way. I got to assume that the life of a child actor is largely lonely. No? Like, well, I mean, unless I can you're getting only... caught up in the trappings of it with... yeah. I can only speak from my personal experience. It's a predatory environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not mean sexually predatory. I know that exists. That was never my experience, but it is a predatory environment where you have adults seeking to exploit children for profit. And in my case, complicit parents who were thrilled to do that. I felt like I was not in charge of my own life. My dad was a bully to me. I have no contact with my parents because my father was an abusive bully to me my entire life. And my mother let him get away with it and then gaslighted me about it because all she really cared about was, am I famous? Am I working in movies? Am I making the family money? That was the relationship like at home. It Mm -hmm. sucked. I was so lonely and I was afraid all the time. And I had all this pressure on me. Like I had to book these jobs. I had to... I had to be the best to get the job. And like, if I was the best and I got the job, then my mom would be happy. And then like, maybe, maybe that would be the thing that would get my dad to love me. 
And I did that my whole childhood and well into my adult life before I just accepted the reality of who those people are. When I was a kid and so withdrawn and, and, and lonely, I could take these books you know, this was before Game Boy. Game Boy really changed things. That let me have a Game Boy on the set, and I could play. I could play games on the set, and that mm-hmm. really changed things for me. I could like, I could play video games, and 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 that gave me something to do when I wasn't like performing in a scene. But uh, until then, until like, when does the Game Boy come out? Like eighty seven or eighty eight or something like that. So until then, it's just books. It's always books all the time, and it's like for me, it's it's either like Asimov uh, science fiction. Or Stephen King fiction. That was that was what I read. That was what I loved. And in these stories, in different seasons, I found characters who I liked, and I found relationships that I could aspire to have myself. Like my favorite moment in Shawshank Redemption is when he says, if you've come this far, maybe you'll go a little further. Right. The idea being you are my friend and I love you. And I have worked so hard to put this together to like honor our friendship. That was like, are you kidding me? That would have been a dream come true for me. Someone well, well, who was willing to do that. Well, also not obligating you to right. That, that that's what's amazing about that is that it's, here's all the stuff. You're my friend. You you've earned this, have a little bit of freedom that this money can provide. Yeah. If you want to find me, you know where, where I am and I will be there for you. No weirdness, though. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. You know? No strings attached. Yeah. So after after Shawshank Redemption, it's Apt Pupil, which is an extremely upsetting novella. Yes. For those who don't know, it is the story of a, a kid. He's a teenager, right? He's 13 in the yeah, story. Yeah, I recall. Yeah, that's. I remember. I feel. Yeah. Okay, that's right. Yeah. A kid who befriends an old man in his neighborhood. And we find out horrifyingly that the man is a Nazi who is in Not hiding. Nazi. He was the guy in concentration camps, like doing experiments. Yeah. And stuff. He is a bad dude. This whole thing is this kid becoming a Nazi under the tutelage of this old man. It's horrifying. And I just remember feeling that whole story was like, it was like watching something through glass where I was safe, but only as long as the glass was there. And the glass wasn't the thickest glass in the world. <laughs> so like maybe, maybe it wasn't safe. And I liked that feeling. Like it was, it, there was a thrill to that story where I felt like, I felt like I'm seeing something that I shouldn't get to see was how I felt when I read that. Well, yeah, if- what's really kind of fucked up about the story and effective for me is that I can see a lot of myself in Todd Bowden. Not that I was fascinated with Nazism and anti-Semitism and, and murder. You know, he straight up starts becoming a murderer. But I was obsessed with movies, right? So if I had found out that a neighbor next door had, you know, was a big director in the, the 50s and 40s and 50s, you know, I can relate to the obsession of like, hey, I want to go and befriend that guy and talk to that guy. He does an interesting thing where he takes that kind of fanboyism and uses that as a way, as a point of entry to this character who is, he's a sociopath. If he had written this today, he'd be a school shooter, right? This is a kid who, who is obsessed with the Holocaust, not 
for any reasons why anybody should, you know, be paying attention and know that history. He is obsessed with it because he's getting off on it in some weird way. And that further exacerbates, you know, whatever thing is inside him that, uh, you know, ends up, he ends up, you know, killing some, some, uh, Homeless people, they call them winos in the story because I guess that's the, which is whatever they called them at the time. Um, the story ends in a much different way than the the movie adaptation does, where the kid essentially gets found out and he he murders the guidance counselor and then he goes on a, a shooting spree at an overpass. He kills a bunch of people in a car and it's a really haunting like final paragraph. I think the like the last line of the story is something about how it took the cops five hours to take him down. Or something. Yeah. The and implication five hours being, he probably took out a lot of people in that time. Yeah, yeah. But the, it just goes to show how great King is as a writer because he can he can give you a point of entry, and that was my whole you know rambling you know point was that you can you can relate to this kid who is a monster. He's yeah. just as big of a monster as as a uh, Kurt Dusender, the the Nazi that he he finds out. And and what's really weird about the story is that they they feed off each other, and that's again that weird friendship angle that we were talking about. It's an antagonistic relationship throughout almost the entirety of the story, but at a certain point they need each other, right? Like just mm-hmm. a, as as people, and he they're bringing out the worst in each other as they're doing it. It's it's like the very definition of a toxic relationship, yeah, a toxic friendship, and it, it especially great coming off of the heels of Shawshank which is the polar opposite kind of friendship, right? This is the Shawshank's all about hope that is giving you hope. The, the, the whole point of, uh, you know, Andy in that, that movie is to bring hope into Shawshank and he, his hope never wavers. And that's why he's able to get out. A pupil is uh, quite the opposite. It's, it's a very cynical story. It's, it's uh, gorgeously written for as dark as the subject matter is. Yeah. Um, but I, it's such a bummer that I've never seen the movie. Nor nor have I. Like I I actually before Eric, before you said that, you know, the movie existed, I was under the impression that it was like in turnaround. And and that it had that and that it had been for a really long time because uh I don't recall it being released. I recall it being talked about, but I don't recall it being released, but it's got such a weird history. This this adaptation. I mean, obviously, the Brian Singer film has a lot of history and a lot of behind the scenes stuff that makes it really difficult to revisit now. Um, that said, you know, it was Brian Singer's follow up to Usual Suspects, and it is it's a really well made movie. I think Ian McKellen is inspired casting, and this is. You know, I think Brad Renfro does a great job, but it's hard to put praise on the movie knowing some of the behind the scenes stories and knowing what, you know, accusations against Brian Singer came later. And then rewatching it with that in mind, it, it becomes a little more lecherous than it would have if you didn't know any of that stuff. And the way he shoots Renfro and all this stuff becomes a little hard to talk about. But the movie itself, I think, is it's pretty good. It's not a, a, a great masterpiece of a movie, but it's pretty good. But it's also not the first time they tried to make the movie. They they almost made one in the uh, late '80s with Nicole Williamson as uh, Dusender, uh, who's Merlin from Excalibur, and uh, Ricky Schroeder was uh, was Todd Bowden, the the main kid. That 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 is a fascinating one because that one they shot for I think two thirds of the film. They shot two thirds of it, and then they lost their 
their financing. They lost their money, but it was originally like written as a role for uh, uh, James Mason. It was then he died. James Mason was going to play the oh wow the, the Nazi, uh, and then he passed. But it's fascinating. Like there, apparently, there's footage that exists. Like there's rumors that there was like the cut that they threw together of what remained like circulated around the uh, on VHSs around the like conventions and stuff in the late eighties and early nineties. But like none of that's ever survived anywhere. I'd be fascinated to see that. I miss so much going to cons in, (laughs) in the eighties and finding the weirdest bootlegged, third generation VHS copy of some crazy thing. Right. It was always next to the star Wars holiday special. They would have every single time. Right. And, and like, and some kind of like not, and then knockoffs of the of movies like wizards and uh, (laughs) um, Superman three, like just like all that stuff. And God, I remember just being, beside myself when I found like the Turkish star Wars and (laughs) things that you can find that you, that you can find with, with, with minimal effort, just like using a search engine today, like, you know, there was that weird sketchy guy at cons who just had tons of video cassettes or, or DVDs. And you were just like, this is a hundred percent copyright infringement. And I am so into it. I think it's an interesting, just to loop back around to, this this thing about the alternate version with Ricky Schroeder. I think there's something interesting about the fact that Ricky Schroeder plays this like budding Nazi kid in this movie. And then the last thing I heard about Ricky Schroeder was years ago until very recently when I heard he fucking bailed Kyle Rittenhouse at a at a gym. Yeah, Ricky Schroeder yeah. also on the list of giant pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and what's crazy is I think that based on what I've researched on the version of the movie that they were making back then one of the reasons the financing fell through was because they were going to keep true to the novellas ending, which has the all American blonde haired, blue eyed kid going on a uh, shooting spree. And it's doubly fascinating now when you see why Ricky Schroeder's in the news now, and he's essentially bailing out Todd Bowden, right? He's bailing out that character in real life. You know, we've, we've talked about what we would do if somebody came on the show and picked apt pupil. And those conversations usually end with me being like, I don't think it's a good idea. It's a fucking minefield to do an entire hour on that. And, you know, I don't know how you navigate that conversation, honestly, without also being insensitive somehow. So I was really glad when we'll pick different seasons because this gives us an opportunity to talk about it a little bit, but not make it the focus. And so my question for Will is, where do you land on the separating the art from the artist debate? I'm all over the place on that. I haven't really found a definitive answer to it. Um, right. Ev- everything is situational. It's a case um, by case thing, right? So, yeah. When So when Eric was talking about Brian Singer directing at Pupil and like Brian Singer is not a good person and is a predator and Kevin Spacey is a predator and not a good person, but The Usual Suspects is a fucking great movie. Mm-hmm. That said, I have not made an effort to watch it in a number of years just because there's other stuff that is not done by problematic people. Um, Right. You can watch it without having that sour taste left in your mouth. Yeah, exactly. So when you're talking about Brian Singer directing at pupil, I think of something like Roman Polanski directing Rosemary's baby, which is a phenomenal movie, but Roman Polanski is a bad person. 
How do you completely separate those things? I don't know. I make choices with my money. Like that's one of the things we do in a capitalist society is we just like choose where my money goes. So I tend to like not support artists that are, that are bad people. But I believe that all art is inherently political, no matter what. All artists, we are all inherently political, no matter what. Like we're making our art for some kind of reason. There are very, very, very few artists that I am aware of who are like, I'm going to be an artist because I want to make money. The majority of people I know who are artists have this odd compulsion to create the art because we're working something out or because we want to express something or share something like that. If the person who is the lens for that is is a predator or an abuser, I don't know how that changes my feeling about the final project when there are literally hundreds of other people involved in the production. Mm-hmm. So in a in a big thing like a film that's so complicated, unless it's an actor who I like just I'm you know there are actors who are just incredibly off-putting to me, but in general the garbage people tend to be garbage actors. Um, <laughs> because to be a, a convincing actor in general, you need compassion and empathy. And, you know, when these people are dirtbags and they don't have compassion or, or empathy, they might be really good at flexing on camera and really good at looking pretty or really good at like playing a sociopath, but they're not the beginning and ending of the entire project. Right. Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm not going to watch whoever, whichever one of the shitbag Paul brothers is boxing Floyd Mayweather. I'm not <laughs> going to watch that. I'm going to hope that he just. I'm just going to hope that that person gets one shotted. <laughs> so like, that's a thing where I'm like, I can completely ignore that. But if those guys, but if those guys were like, yes, we did an amazing adaptation of an incredible thing. I'd be like, ah. if Logan Paul had made Rosemary's baby, you might be have more complicated. <laughs> if Logan Paul had made Rosemary's baby, it would be called getting hit in the nuts at, uh, <laughs> at a champagne party. And it would be on YouTube. <laughs> like it wouldn't be Rosemary's baby. Sometimes I see things where like the public life of an artist is so gross and you can see the grossness of their public life expressed through their art. In that case, I'm not going to engage with the art or interact with the art at all because I don't I don't want that. That's gross. I don't like that. Right, right. Right. That's easy. But like yeah. some like the one I always struggle with is Michael Jackson. I grew up with Michael Jackson's music. So I did fucking, I. I fucking love Michael Jackson's music. Yeah. You know? Then I saw what was it? Finding Neverland. Yeah. And and it's sort of like, well, I believe these guys. And once you know that now, when I go out in public and if I hear like a Michael Jackson song on Walmart or some shit or in a bar, I can listen to it. You know, I'm not going to throw my drink on the ground and run out of the building, but I also, it has impacted my opinion. And I find myself putting on Michael Jackson a lot less since I saw that documentary. I kind of feel like, well, if you believe these guys, it's the least you can do is to at least stop, think about it and sort of, you know, acknowledge that, you know, this person might have been a, a gigantic douche. And in that case, a pedophile. The older I get, the the more I, I, I make the effort to see things in shades of gray and accept that people are complicated. I get the impulse behind like cancel culture. I get the idea and I get the, the frustration of young people who see bad people powerful people rewarded over and over and over again 
for their bad behavior with no consequences. So, so, so a generation went, okay, fine. If the existing power structure isn't going to hold these people accountable, then we as consumers will. And you can see that it's working because abusers and predators are, are constantly freaking out about cancel culture. Like they're somehow the victims of it. So I, I totally understand where that comes from. And I understand the frustration and the desire to just like push back and hold bad people accountable. And if that's the way that a generation's going to do it, it's harsh, but like, I get it, man. I get how just fed up people are with bad behavior being rewarded. I think it's ultimately going to prove a problem. If, I agree with you. I think you know, it, if, I, if, yeah, if, I absolutely like look at look at the case of Quentin Tarantino, just as a for instance. You know, Quentin fucked up big time filming Kill Bill Two, basically bullying Uma Thurman into to doing that shot where she got in a car wreck. Mm-hmm. You know, and and he does need to be held accountable for that. And it sounds like Uma Thurman very much held him accountable for that. But also, he apologized. Whatever conversations they had fixed the issue, and she forgave him. And, you know, then started. And he a- hasn't repeated that behavior on, on uh, right. other films that we know of. Right. So, but then when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, it was like, oh, so I guess everyone's just forgotten that Quentin Tarantino did this horrible thing to Uma Thurman. It's like, yeah, but how do I say this? Like, if she forgave him, who am I to not forgive him? You know what I mean? Like, it seems like at that point, you just want to be kind of mad at Quentin Tarantino. And what, a thing you always see in in those situations is people saying, I never liked that motherfucker anyway, or their movies sucked always. And, and it kind of like tips your hand that. So it's not really about justice for this other person. It's like you have an opportunity now to openly talk shit about somebody that is beloved and you're you're hopping on that bandwagon. In in those cases, it, I understand the anger, but I also feel like it feels a little opportunistic if these purity tests continue. I think we're going to find that a lot of people are flawed and have made mistakes in their life, some bigger than others, certainly. Some things can be forgiven and some cannot. And that's just such a personal thing, like whether or not, you know, you take them at face value, you accept that apology. Yeah, I um, agree with that. And I feel like it is really just, this feels like a cop out, but it is sincerely how I feel. It's really up to every member of the audience to decide what is acceptable for them. And it's up to every individual in the audience to decide if they're going to support someone or not. Fortunately, there's a ton of art out there right now, and we have access to more art than we've ever had before. Totally. So if there's someone whose who's work you, you do not enjoy or someone whose work you enjoy and you don't enjoy them as a person, there's definitely someplace else to go. Well, I still don't think I'm going to watch that pupil, um, <laughs> which is fair. I don't. And, and I, go- I I didn't. I really never had a use for a movie version of that anyway, because the story just made me feel again Icky. very well written. It's a great story, but I don't need more of that. I don't need to see it dramatized. You know, um, I'm good. You know, which is why I never got around to it. And then once all the shit about Brian Singer came out, it was like, okay, now I really don't have any interest in seeing this shit. Yeah, that, that, that's the toughest thing because you, I can watch Usual Suspects now and, you know, even though it's Kevin Spacey and it's Brian Singer, weirdly watching it, that doesn't get in the way because it's about a 
bunch of dudes, you know, it's, it's a crime story. It's a, it's about, you know, what uh, the structure of, of information being, you know, given to you at certain points, you watch it that way, but watching at pupils harder to separate that stuff out because there's a, a 14 year old kid at the, at the center of this, that, do you, you know, feel like led a tragic life and, and the way he shoots this Renfro, it, it, you can't help, but feel like, you know, that there's, it's kind of a loving Look, there, there's there's a lecherousness to it. Yeah, I was, that's I was going to ask you. Do you feel like there's an inappropriate male gaze in in the way that that the film is made? I think so. Yes, um, it's not even in the the big like the controversial the shower scene that everybody's you know heard about. What's really upsetting about the shower scene is that the shower scene is an important sequence in the, in the movie. Like this is the the part where you're seeing Todd really being affected by the Holocaust stories and the way that it. The way that it shot, it it very clearly didn't need to see you know teenage butts, right? You, they could they could have framed those out, and and it wouldn't have changed the scene one iota, right? It, but the scene itself is very effective, and if they had just raised the camera a little bit, then you would have had a really impactful scene because the the scene itself is is uh you know it's a PE shower, you know they all the all the boys are in there they're showering, and then Todd, the main character who's been listening to all these Holocaust stories, it like transitions from you know, him being surrounded by his classmates to him being surrounded by concentration camp victims, you know, in showers and the shower imagery and, and all that stuff. And it's showing how he's being affected by all this stuff. And it's a crucially important scene, but you can't watch that now without that, you know, controversy and without knowing all the behind the scenes stuff. Um, But but even more than that, it's just the way he shoot. There's, you know how when you can clearly tell the director is in love with with their star, like you watch, you know, the way Hitchcock, sh- you know, shoots Tippi Hedren or, right. you know, or Grace Kelly or any of, any of his blonde. Look at the way you know, anyone was, shot Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> for sure. Like you can you can tell that 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 person's in love with him a little bit. And there's a little bit of that with with at pupil with Brad Renfro. And it's th- that's one where you can't separate the. I'm finding it difficult anyway to separate the art from the artist. Right. Um, so I'm sorry. Was that, did that answer your question? It did. Thank you. All right. Good. One movie and one adaptation that I uh, don't believe has that problem is stand by me in the body. Let's, yeah, let's move so on. The next, the next, yeah. The next, so the, next, the next story in the, in the book is, is the body. And of course that becomes stand by me and stand by me is Gordy's story. The body is Chris's story. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was real interesting for me as a young actor, 12 years old, when I read that book for the first time. And, and, and did you read it before you shot the movie? I did. If I were doing it today, I would not. I would only read the script because I'm not, I'm a dad, I'm doing what the script tells me to do. I'm not doing what the book says. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably have a conversation with the screenwriter and the director. Do you want me to read these, the source material? my instinct would be to not read the source material until afterward because I wouldn't want to get confused. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to do like an impression of what, you know, what I read in the, in the book, but I loved it. There's a lot of dialogue in the story that is straight in the movie. So like I recognized that the short stories that Gordy in the book writes, there's a couple of them in the body that uh, there's one that's not in the movie. I really, really, for the first time in my life, I don't remember a time in my life when I couldn't read. I have always identified with characters in, in stories and projected myself uh, into them. 
one of the reasons I, I believe so strongly that representation matters in media is the reality that I'm um, a, a cisgendered straight white guy and I see myself everywhere. Right. Like I do not have to look for representation. I can always identify with somebody. Generally, the most heroic character is written from the perspective of a white man. That's just, that was my experience. Since I've grown older, I, I try to actually get away from just like people who are who look and sound like me because I want a diversity of experiences and I want the more I can understand how people who are different from me experience the world, the more I can use my privilege to make that world more just. This was the first time I could literally see myself in the story. And that was cool. That was just the neatest thing. I probably read the body oof, five or six times over the years because people wanted to talk about it. And I, I needed to know, you know everything about it. I have not looked at it in 30 years. But I absolutely loved it. I mean, I don't know what to say specifically about it. Someone <laughs> listening to this probably knows more about Stand By Me than I do and probably knows more about the body than I do. What I can tell you about production is that I thought we were making something special. I don't know if anyone else believed that, but I believe we were making something special that was definitely going to get a release. None of us expected that it was going to become what it became, but we expected it was going to be released. I remember Jerry's dad saying, don't tell anybody about this movie because most movies don't get released. And he's, and he's right. What? There's just like you go and work on a thing and and it gets maybe it gets black boxed for a day and then it's gone. Before we had this explosion of bandwidth and, and distribution, you know, if it wasn't in a theater, it didn't exist. And there were fewer ways to get things out in front of the public. And we really lucked out that this got the release that it did and that it captured the imagination uh, of a generation the way that it did. But it all starts with the material. It all starts with the novella. And the novella, I, I think, is just beautiful and uh, and flawlessly told. And I, I think that we did an, an extraordinary adaptation of it. I have heard apocryphally that Stephen King's favorite film adaptation of his work is Misery. But until Misery came out, it had been Stand By Me. Well, I know that he's spoken specifically about your portrayal as Gordy before because he's – that I mean that that's the Stephen King character in this, right? The, yeah. if, this, if this is him telling a story about his childhood, which a lot of it is, he's said multiple times that the leeches scene was something that actually happened to him when he was a kid. Yeah, and he has the scars to prove it. Yeah, and uh, uh, don't show anybody those scars, Steve. You, we don't want you canceled right now. Um, <laughs> they le- uh, wait, hold on. Leeches leave scars. Yeah, they apparently. Bite you. Well, I know the they bite you, but I've been bitten by things before that didn't leave a scar. I didn't realize I've been bitten by a leech. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank Christ to go to what you were saying a little earlier about how you felt like you didn't have any friends and, and you know, how lonely you felt, you know, I, I know it's a little consolation this late in the game, but as a kid watching that movie, I felt like you were my friend. Like I, when yeah. I would rewatch that, it's weird because it's a movie, but like I was also aware of you as an actor, right? So Gordy Lachance and Will Wheaton, I felt like I was visiting my friends when I would rewatch that movie, you know, River Phoenix and Chris Chambers. I felt like I was revisiting my friends watching that movie. I, I had a very similar upbringing um, to you. I, my my uh, mom was a single mom for most of my childhood, and, and uh, she married my stepdad when I was 10. 
and you know, we never really connected. He wasn't abusive, but we never connected much at all. But I was that kid too, that I was reading. I was happier when I was reading. I had, I had some friends that I would see and hang out with, you know, but weirdly enough, I I had more movie friends and book friends that I would revisit. Right. There's a great line on the Simpsons where Lisa's sad. And Marge says, Lisa is a book character having troubles. (laughs) <laughs> and oh my god i felt personally attacked in that when that line happened and i was like oh yes my book character is having trouble somebody finally sees that sort of building off what eric was just saying about the theme of friendship that runs through the book and the idea that you felt so uh lonely in your own childhood i'm curious if if that shoot was a respite from that like were y'all all tight Pretty much, yeah. I mean, listen, when you get a group of 12 to to 15-year-old kids together, base instinct takes over in that group dynamic. And the kids figure out a hierarchy right away. Oh, yeah. And and River was at the top and I was at the bottom. I was sensitive. I was insecure. I was shy. I was super nerdy. And I was easy to pick on. It was easy to make me cry. And Corey picked on me relentlessly. Um, he was so cruel to me. I remember when we, when I interviewed you, like way back in the day, you mentioned specifically the leeches scene where, like, he was like digging his knee in in your yeah. your back or something really hard. Yeah, when we come out of the swamp, come out of the water, and they're like dog pile, dog pile. I was on the bottom, and Corey was taking his right knee and pushing it into the inside of my left knee and just pushing it as hard as he could and really hurting me. And I was trying to get through the scene and I, I just ended up crying because it hurt so bad. And Rob cut and he's like, what's wrong? And I said, his, his knees in, in, in my, in my knee. And I wasn't like, he's doing this. I was just like, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. And Rob lost his fucking mind, man. Corey got in so much trouble for that. It was unnecessary. It was just cruel and it was hurtful and it was deliberate. He was also 15 and really suffering. Listen, I I have love in my heart for him and uh, I do not, we're not close. We're never going to be close. We aren't friends. We're very different people, but I do not hold any ill will toward him at all. I want to get in between the little boy and the shitty fucking parents that destroyed that little boy's childhood for so they could get rich. And I want to protect him. And I want to tell him it's going to be okay. Corey has had a really hard life and clearly is damaged. You know, Rob told me that that was why he's so good in, in this movie and he's so good in this role. We are all good in this movie because we are our characters. It never occurred to me. I I didn't confront the reality of my abusive childhood until a few years ago. I didn't confront the reality that my father does not and and I don't think ever did love me until just a couple of years ago. And in the story, you know, in the in the character archetypes, Chris is this kid who's just totally misunderstood, who is trying to overcome people's perceptions of him. He has been failed at every turn by the adults in his life, and he is still overcoming them. Well, that was River perfectly. His family was super, super loving. 
but they had some weird issues. And I think River felt obligations to support the family and to just take on all this adult responsibility that no child should ever have. He was very much Chris in that way. I remember, you know, when he tells Gordy about the milk money, River was sort of struggling with the scene. And Rob said, can you think about a time in your life when an adult really let you down? And River goes, yeah. And the next take is the take that's in the movie. Wow. But then it gets to me. And then I'll say, well, we'll go to Jerry. There was another kid who we all thought was going to be cast to play Vern. He actually plays one of Gordy's children in the, in the final cut of the film. He was great. But every time Jerry was in the room, everybody was laughing. And that, that's who Vern is. Right. right? So three of the four kids are those characters. Then we get to me. My dad worshipped my brother, who's younger than me, did everything with him. My brother could not do anything wrong. In our family dynamic, I was the scapegoat and he was and is their golden child. I didn't put together, because Denny's older than Gordy, that that same dynamic could exist just with a younger sibling. There is no doubt in my mind, if I were ever to have that kind of nightmare that Gordy has, that the man who was my father would absolutely say it should have been you. By the time I did Stand By Me, I was already writing stories. I lived in my imagination. I told stories through the adventures I made up in Dungeons and Dragons. I told stories by adapt. I wrote like fan fiction adaptations of things I saw on TV because I wanted to practice being a writer. And I wrote short stories. And when journalists would ask me about if we were like our characters or not, I always said, yeah, you know, I'm a writer just like Gordy is. It didn't occur to me. And I just can't, I still can't believe this. It didn't occur to me until I was like 46 years old. Oh my God. I'm the invisible kid in my house. Nothing I do is good enough for my father. My brother is the one everybody cares about and everybody loves. The only time my dad ever paid attention to me was to humiliate me or mock me or put me down or yell at me. Like there was never any positive loving attention from him ever. And that was what Gordy's life was like. That's wild, especially given that it seems like you were their meal ticket, no? Oh, I was 100% their meal ticket. And I think that my dad really resented that. Uh, I'd say. Because as I look back through my life, I'm trying to like put everything like into dates and ages and things like that. And I tried really hard to have these conversations with my parents so they could help me through it and we could like kind of heal it together and, and move on and be a family again. And they were unable and unwilling to participate in that. Uh, dad didn't care and mom just lied about everything. And I remember making these, these efforts to like, to really reach them and and really have a, a good, loving relationship. They just weren't interested. It was always so weird to me to realize that it was so important to my mom that I was a famous actor. Not that I was an actor, not that I was happy, not that I was chasing a dream or whatever. It was really important to her that I was famous and people were paying attention to her because they were paying attention to me. And it seems to be around nine, 10 years old that my dad really just his demeanor toward me changes from being disinterested to disdainful. And when Stand By Me happened 
and Stand By Me was so successful and I was famous overnight. I think he hated that. And my dad's a narcissist. And I think he really resented that I was earning a lot of money. I think he resented the attention my mother paid to me. And I think he resented that I was successful. I think he just wanted me to disappear and know my place, I guess. Fuck. It's rough, man. I'm sorry. You know, I hope you'll I hope you'll take this as the uh the compliment I mean it to be, but you know, I think it's impressive that you turned out as well as you did. I appreciate you know? that. Thank you. I, oh, listen, I'm really lucky because the parents in my home, the two people in my home who should have been my parents were not parents to me at all. Right. But the nine people on the set of Star Trek The Next Generation who were castmates very much were my family. Right. They very much were my parents. My studio teacher, Marion Fife, was an incredibly important influence on me. And taught me the value of education and and taught me the importance of morality and ethics and and gave me all the things that I never got from either one of my parents and, and never would have gotten from my parents. And like, you know, my brother is their golden child and and he's a bully just like my dad. I don't have a relationship with him either. In their version of the story, it's because I'm the asshole, you know, and my version is quite different. But my version also has... Um, the ending that Gordy's version has. Right. I have a family who I adore and I have children who make me proud, who I love. I have the most amazing partnership and friendship with my wife that I never thought possible ever in my life. We're in middle age together and I'm so excited about growing old together. <laughs> like I just, I can't wait. It's going to be so the wedding singer. Uh, romance is what you're saying. hundred percent. And I get to write now. I write and I host and I voice act and I read audiobooks. And I have a life that I really love, that I'm really happy about. It makes me sad that the people who are my parents don't get to participate in that. It makes me sad that I don't get to share these things with them. You know, we're, we're recording this the second week of at the end of the first week of December. And just a few days ago, my 12-year-old dog, who I'd had since he was a puppy, died. And it happened very suddenly and was a huge, devastating loss for our family. And it just, it, because that wasn't bad enough, it also refocused for me that like, I don't have mom and dad to call to get comfort from. And I don't think Gordy had that either. And I think Gordy probably leaves and doesn't have any contact with his shitty parents either. It's one of the hardest things to to make the decision to cut a family member out of your life. I'm estranged from one of my parents. And whenever this comes up in conversation with, you know, somebody that doesn't know my history or any of that, uh, they're always like, well, why don't you try to patch it up? Why don't you do that? Or like, maybe you're overreacting. No, I'm not. Like, I, know. I didn't come to this fucking decision easily. And my life is demonstrably better without this person who was like, you know, poisonous sticking around and making things difficult for me. Like it always drives me nuts when, when people say shit like that, as though, you know, the decision was made lightly or like, you know, you're just being maybe pouty about some shit. Like, you're no, just this having is, a tantrum. yeah, no, it's serious shit. Like if you've come to that point, if anyone listening to this, if someone ever tells you they're estranged from one of their parents, take them at face value. Don't try to, you know, fix it for them. Cause they like, Guarantee you they have thought of uh, other options. I'm going to do everybody a solid. When someone tells you that they're estranged from your parents, from their parents, this is what you say. God, that sucks. I'm so sorry. That's it. Don't yep. say anything yeah. else. Exactly. That's, exactly. That's, all you, 
that's that is all you have to say. So in in this way that I was completely unaware of until just recently, I am Gordy and Gordy is me. And that's in the movie. Gordy on the page of the book is real different from Gordy in the movie. But I I very 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 much am Gordy from from that film uh, as an adult now. And that is weird. And even when my kids were weird, when my kids were young, I remember my kids saying, my dad is weird when he's writing, <laughs> which is like <laughs> a line from the movie. I love watching it now. I absolutely love it. I don't see myself anymore. I see a child who I once was, but like I'm so far removed from um, right. that I can actually watch it. I'm working on a project right now. And the director yesterday said, do you like to watch your own work? And I was like, oh no, I hate to watch my own work. I can't stand it. All I see are the flaws. And he was like, okay, then I will not invite you to watch dailies. And I was like, no, thank you. I really don't want to see that. It took me a real long time to be able to see Stand By Me on its own. took me a real long time to let Stand By Me be its own movie. It also changes for you as you get older. As a child, it's a great adventure. And you want to be friends with these kids. You want to hang out with them. You want Chris to think you're cool. You want to make Vern laugh. You love it when when they succeed over over the the bully older kids. But as an adult, that movie is about relationships that only exist for a fucking second. Yeah. And they're yeah. so important. They are just the most important relationships that you you'll ever have. You don't you know, you'll never have friends like that ever again because it happens at that exact moment. To experience that as an adult and to experience it with my own kids, to let my kids see it and then let them see little kid me, that was great. That was really cool. Yeah, that's got to be a weird experience for them because they get to relate to their dad in a way that that most people don't. You know, it's like I, I think that outside of like family home video or something, you know, old Super 8 stuff, there, there's not really a, a way for most people to to have that experience. Yeah. We are running extremely, extremely, extremely long, um, which means we're going to give uh, Breathing Method the short shrift here. I do want to touch upon it real quick. Yeah. Um, uh, my apologies. As I've said, I've tried to read it and I just, yeah. I just can't. I, it just doesn't hold my, it just doesn't hold my interest. Uh, so I've never read it. So I don't even know. I, I, it's something about trying to have a kid or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have a very similar experience with you. I, I revisited this uh, literally yesterday, you know, in prep for this episode. And I can't tell you how much this should be my shit. Cause it, it's the whole setup. There's a group that gathers together in this, you know, mysterious New York apartment that, uh, you know, that's seemingly bigger on the inside. It's a TARDIS, right? It's seemingly yeah. big, bigger on the inside than it is on the out. And, and uh, the Butler's there and he's never aged. And like, there's all this crazy shit that goes on, you know, there is the setup to all these old people gathering around and telling stories. And the story that they tell here is of a doctor and his relationship with one of his patients who is a single mother. And, and once you get into the story itself, it's really gripping, but there's like easily half of the novella is just setting up this book club. And for whatever reason, and I'm with you, Will, like I bounce off of this section, even when I've read through it, it goes in one ear and out the other. So when I revisited it yesterday, it was almost exactly like a first time experience reading that. And it wasn't until I actually got to the story itself that I go, oh, yeah, I remember all this stuff. Scott, do you have a, a similar experience with this? Yeah, or just that I love the the world building of that in theory. I love the idea of this sort of like hoity-toity 
um i'm imagining wood paneled walls on a big fireplace and, and lots yeah, of leather like lots of leather bound books yes it's like the retiree midnight society or yeah, something right. from uh you know are you afraid of the dark they sit around they tell each other weird ass stories i love this i love this concept but i'm not terribly excited about the manner in which it's it's written um right. it's like a really interesting idea that's just handled very clunkily i think and then when when it gets time to tell the story, it's about this surgeon who meets a woman who's pregnant and she's just determined to have her baby. Long story short, she gets decapitated and still gives birth to the On the way to the, the hospital, it's, it's a car accident. Yeah. I'm fine with all that. All of this in theory sounds, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. But it's I think it's the slightest book in this collection and uh, it's the least interesting one overall to me. It's very captivating, very well written character wise. Like you, you get to know the surgeon, you get to know the, the woman and the struggles that she's having as, you know, because uh, at this point, this is like when Lamaze is being first introduced and that's the quote unquote, the breathing method. Now she's getting fired because she's pregnant and unwed and, and all this stuff. And you, you get to know these people and then she gets her head chopped off. And her body continues to deliver the baby and in the breathing method is, is still going on. It's just going through the, you know, the, the severed, uh, head. The severed head. Yeah. Uh, who's like alert and watching and like mouths. Thank you to the doctor when the baby's delivered. And like, it's, it's a really fun thing, but it should be the short story itself should, would have been at home in in another collection. And, uh, and I think that the reason why this one doesn't feel like it fits is it's the one like mostly horror story of them all, even though at pupil, I think is arguably the most horrific of mm-hmm. all the story. Agreed. This is one of the most like straight up genre. And it was something that King essentially agreed to his editor at Viking, like, okay, I'll let one of them be a horror story. And that's what that one was. So it, it feels like the consolation prize to appease the publisher more than it does a cohesive ending to that series of novellas. The first thing I, I wonder I- if it suffers from, a lot of throat clearing before the story gets going and none of the other, sure. none of the other stories in the collection do that they hit the ground running and also yeah. at the end so like it's very easy when it's just like oh gosh this just isn't interesting me at all well i'm already done with the book so i guess i'm just going to end it a little early that was <laughs> right. the way that my thought process always worked on it i would also yeah. point out that after all that build up the story itself that the guy tells it's not that great you know lady gets her head cut off she gives birth anyway that's it you know, I mean, yeah, it's weird, I guess, but like I hear this story and I'm thinking like, is the severed head like making like a whistling noise out of the esophagus when she's breathing? Like, <laughs> like when you get a sharp booger in your nose and you're breathing yeah. and it sounds like a whistle, like that's what I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking when the severed head is, is doing its thing. And, uh, it's not doing anything because it has no lungs to generate the airflow, but she's, the head is taking breaths, right? The head's just kind of there. They, like it, it's funny they describe it as like while in the process of trying to deliver the baby, they keep like kicking the head in weird directions. What's breathing is the <laughs> like you said, the esophagus. The what's left of the the neck, I guess, is 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 staying alive, and the head's just conscious and watching. Doctors <laughs> dunking it through a basketball hoop, trying to keep the blood flowing yes. to the brain. Struggling <laughs> <laughs> it like a Harlem Globetrotter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, now all the other stories in this book, you know, they have their own adaptation. So we're, we're, we're in format with the show here, but this one does not, but a curious note onto this is that eight years ago, Scott Derrickson was announced as making a movie version of this. 
And I wonder how you would possibly make a three act feature film based on this story. You, I guess you would have to pad the shit out of it because. Or, or it's the basis of what we've talked about a lot on the show of an anthology. And the anthology is these old men in this mysterious, you know, New York penthouse club telling different Stephen King stories. And one of the stories is breathing method. I mean, that's an option, but there's nothing in any of the reports to indicate that. It's an adaption of the breathing method, as far as I know. You know, if he was doing like, if he was doing sort of like, you know, an old sort of hammer anthology, sort of like old, you know, Tales from the Crypt thing, that would, that would be kind of cool. But then I don't think it would be called the breathing method. It would be called the fucking old people society for weird stories. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen King's the old people society. Of course, got to get his name in there. (laughs) I could get on Uh, board with that because I bet you could like do some cool shit with that. Maybe we'll uh, circle back to Derrickson and see what the hell he was thinking trying to make that movie. He's directing Joe Hill's shit now. You know, he's moved yeah. on from the breathing mechanism. And you've read, I, you've I, read I, I, one of Joe Hill's books, right? Well, I have. Yeah. I, uh, it's been an incredible privilege to read some of his work. Um, one of my dreams, I'm working really hard to make this happen. I have like actual official people working on it. I want to do a special narration of the body. Oh, wow. I just yeah. want to, I just want to do my version of it. I know there's an existing version of it. It's lovely, but I want to do just the body, just me. I just yeah. want to read it. I want to narrate it. I'm working real, real, real hard to make that happen. Uh, That'd be great. Especially but, since, you know, you're now of the writer's age and he's the narrator of the story, right? Yeah. I was surprised to see when I looked up your credits for audiobook narration that there wasn't a Stephen King title on there. You know, if I had to bet, I would have been like, yeah, there's probably a couple of them on there. Well, I think it's very non-controversial to say that Joe Hill has absolutely picked up the mantle from his father. Right. Sure. And has absolutely, you know, his short story work is magnificent. Oh, yeah. 20th Century Ghost is fucking great. So, so, so good. The fucking, uh, there's a story in that one that I think is the scariest short story I've read in the past decade or two, which is, um, fuck, what is it? It's the one where, like, the guy is a publisher of, like, a literary magazine that caters to horror and some uh, best new American horror, I think, is the name of the story. And so he gets a story that just fucks him up. Like it deeply rattles him how disturbing the story is. So he goes to like hunt down whoever wrote it. And he goes to a horror convention and is sort of like asking around. And he ultimately tracks this person down to their house and goes inside. And it's just, it's like basically Texas Chainsaw Massacre shit going yeah. on in there, you know, it, but more, more surreal and sort of dreamlike than that. That whole story and the story within the story uh, really fucked me up. If uh, I, I recommend all of our listeners go go seek that out. It's excellent. Uh, this is a good point for you to plug anything that you might have coming up. I have a ton of work on my calendar, but it's all NDA'd. Okay. I will. I will. So you're doing the Mandalorian. What else? <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of terrific projects in the works, things that I'm incredibly excited about, but it's all NDA'd. So I would just tell listeners, if they are interested, you can find me on the internets in the following places. My blog still lives at willwheaton.net. I'm super active on Facebook just because it's so frictionless for quick thoughts. And my Facebook and Instagram is It's Will Wheaton. And uh, those are the three best places to find me and interact with my work right now. If anyone's interested in my work as an audiobook narrator, 
um, when the pandemic started to keep myself busy and to keep myself in practice, I started going to Project Gutenberg and grabbing public domain stories and just narrating them and giving them away. That stuff can be found at my podcast, which is called Radio Free Burrito. So at RadioFreeBurrito.com, there are links to all of the things that I've done, all the different podcasts that I've done and some some free short stories and things that I've given away. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to do that recently because I've been unbelievably busy with actual work that pays my bills. Um, so I have to prioritize that for obvious reasons. Well, we thank you for giving us so much of your time today. This was great. It's a real pleasure. I've enjoyed this conversation tremendously. Yeah, for sure. Eric, you got anything you want to add? It's good to circle back with you and know that that Stand By Me quad is sitting in a a place of honor and will live on. Yeah, it absolutely will. (laughs) Until one of my heirs decides to sell it. Yeah, it'll it'll be in profiles in history in thirty years. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna end up being on whatever the version of Antiques Roadshow is. Uh, <laughs> right. Will's grandchildren are gonna sell it back to Vespi. Like <laughs> <laughs> you're like, well, I just happen to have forty headshots of your grandfather, so this. Works. <laughs> All right, thanks for joining us, man. This is a lot of fun. It's a real yeah, pleasure. Thanks to talk again, to you guys. Many thanks to our guest, Will Wheaton. That was uh, a fairly incredible episode. Like this is one of my favorites. Listen, we've say I say that a lot. I say this is one of my favorite episodes. It's mm-hmm. like, all these are my children. I love them. Um, but when whenever Will was kind of getting in deep about his like midlife realization about how he is essentially a real life Gordy Lachance and yeah, and yeah. Uh, had the same relationship with his father that Gordy did, all that. Like I was just sitting there, kind of stunned, you know, in silence that he was being so raw. Uh, I did not expect that episode to be so emotional when we started recording it. Went to some very interesting places. And uh, we do know that one was longer than our normal episodes, but hopefully uh, that's not a problem for anybody. You can't have too much of a good thing is what I always say. Yes. Everyone knows this. Like Halloween candy. I guess we should tell them about what's going on the show next week. Yes. Normally we'll tell you a title and then we'll tease it out. Uh, Next week we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to spill all the beans right now. We're doing our first crossover episode with our friends at the Reading Glasses podcast. So that's uh, Mallory O'Meara and Bria Grant. Uh, Mallory, of course, is a uh, you'll recognize as a, one of our favorite guests on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is the uh, person who has introduced Chut Buggins to the King cast. And we had to repay that by doing a crossover episode. Um, and w- what topic are we covering, Scott? Yes, it's the Reading Glasses ladies, Bria Grant. Mallory O'Mara coming on to talk The Raft from Creepshow 2 and Stephen King's Skeleton Crew collection. We pick this apart, both the short story and the uh, the segment from the movie, and we don't always agree on some of our takes, but it's it's a very entertaining listen. You know, And if you're a fan of Mr. Buggins, uh, he is all over that episode, so you'll definitely want to tune in for that. Indeed. And then this Friday on the Patreon, we have a, a really cool bonus episode with an author by the name of Daniel Krause. This guy co-wrote a book with George A. Romero after his untimely death called The Living Dead. This is basically a novel that George A. Romero had been planning for many, many, many years and tinkering with it. And then he tragically passed away before he could complete it. So he is essentially an expert in all things George Romero. And we brought him on to talk a little bit about his experience working with George, uh, what he knows about the 
unmade projects that uh, Stephen King and George Romero were going to work on together. What he thinks of Romero and King's collaborations that did make it onto the screen. Dark Half, Creep Show. This episode is going to be a lot of fun for those of you who count yourselves fans of George A. Romero as much as you do Stephen King. And that'll be hitting our Patreon this Friday. If you are not already subscribed to the Patreon, please go to patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. Find the tier that works best for you and potentially unlock a shitload of content that we have been amassing over there uh, for the past, I don't know, six months now or something. Uh, Ton of commentaries, bonus episodes, weird little tangents. There's a lot going on over there and we're building up a pretty fun community. Oh, and speaking of building up fun communities, it has been brought to our attention that it might perhaps behoove us to direct you, the KingCast listeners of the world, to head on over to iTunes and leave us a positive review. We've taken our dings here and there, mostly because people do not care for the occasional bit of political commentary that is taking place on the show. Uh, We are in no way going to stop doing that, you know, when it's necessary and as we see fit. But couldn't hurt to have our listeners pop over there and and say a couple nice things. You talk about how, how handsome... Eric is and how velvety smooth my voice is and you know how much you love Stephen King that sort of thing do us a little a little solid to break in the new year pop over there leave a nice note we appreciate it and do we have anything else to to talk about it nope I think that'll do us so we'll see you see you all next week for our discussion on the raft see you then folks the King cast is a Fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by Eric Vespi that's me and Scott Wampler Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>